Welcome to the Portionality Podcast, a curiously sermonic podcast playground for adulting over 30. Because let's keep it real, life will keep lifing with swift transitions, but together we can honor the moments we are in and keep on living. I am your host, Portia Williams-Gates. Join me every Wednesday as we grow and live together. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Portionality Podcast. I am your host, Portia Williams-Gates. I am so excited for this episode because we have a guest, okay? But before we get into that guest interview, I want to let you know that I absolutely appreciate it with every single time that you subscribe to this podcast, every time you drop me a note, every time you drop me a line. So keep it coming. Make sure you are subscribed to this podcast. Make sure you are sharing this podcast. Make sure wherever you are listening to this podcast, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, you are rating this five stars, giving this a thumbs up. I really do appreciate you all listening and tuning in. Of course, you can always book a service with me, have a conversation with me. You can even sign up to be a guest on the podcast. And all of that information is found at www.portionality.com. I am so excited for this episode today. We have with us none other than Jamila Pitts. Jamila Pitts is the author of the forthcoming book, Toward Liberation, Educational Practices Rooted in Activism, Healing, and Love. That book is available right now for pre-order. I'm going to drop the link to the pre-orders in the description box. Make sure you go get this book, y'all. Let me tell you, it is very important for us to support authors in the beginning as their books are in pre-sale. Okay. Come on somebody get the pre-sales. Okay. Because it helps authors in their book sales and it helps them to be able to say to publishers, this is the kind of content that people want. So let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about Jamila Pitts. I'm going to read her official bio and also tell you how I even know her because hello, she and I went to the illustrious Spelman College. We were actually dorm mates our freshman year. We were also cohorts in the same department. We were in the English department. We graduated same class, class of 2012, and we participated in the chapel together. So Jamila has seen me through some really, really uh, wonderful times of my life in college um, as a cohort member of the class of 2012. And so she is awesome. But let me tell you about her specifically, okay? Jamila Pitts, the educator, the author, the speaker, the advocate, and the entrepreneur, okay? Jamila Pitts is an educational consultant and equity and justice strategist whose work centers the liberation, healing, and holistic development of youth, particularly children of color. In partnership with schools, leaders, and organizations, Jamila provides training, strategic planning, and thought leadership on anti-racist, culturally responsive, equitable, and restorative practices, anti-bias curriculum development, and wellness and yoga practices for student and staff self-preservation. She has served as a teacher, coach, dean of instruction, dean of students, and assistant principal, and has worked at schools in Massachusetts, New York City, the Dominican Republic, China, and India. Jamila threads her passion for human rights and social justice into her teaching, writing, scholarship, and other artistic pursuits. She sees education as her life's work and calling and truly believes that education should be an avenue through which empathy, healing, and justice are promoted. Jamila holds degrees from the Spelman College, Boston College, and has pursued an additional graduate degree at Teachers College at Columbia University. She is a Woodrow Wilson National Teaching Fellow, Donovan Urban Teaching Scholar, and a Fund for Teachers Fellow and a member of the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board. Y'all, go ahead and give it up and get excited and welcome my guest, the Jamila Pitts. Greetings, everyone. I am so excited to be here with the one and the only wonderful woman of God, woman of faith, woman of embodiment, woman of joy, of love and liberation, the Miss Jamila Pitts. Welcome to the show, Jamila. Thank you, Portia. I'm already tearing up. 
So I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Just thank you so much for this. I shared that before we got on, but just thank you so much for this platform. Thank you so much for just entrusting spirit in the way that you do. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm humbled. I'm honored to be able to just dive in in this way. I really, really am. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, and thank you just for being yourself, for showing up in the way that you do in the world, for allowing God to impart these words in you that are going to be published. Come on, somebody. Okay. Published into the world. Your work as an entrepreneur, which she imprints, a consultant, a teacher, just a lover of life. I mean, I am immensely proud of you, Jamila. Like I told the people already how I've known you since college, but truly I am immensely proud of you and you are doing wonderful and great things. And so I have a question for you for this fabulous book that is getting ready to drop in November. Ow, ow. <laughs> you have this book called Toward Liberation. What inspired you to write this book? I mean, I mean, for the educators, for the liberators, for those who care about the intersections of justice and education, and you are a teacher at heart because, okay, like you are a real one. Like you have been in the classroom, you have been on the front line, you have been amongst the students, been amongst the teachers, you have been with the administration, you have been with the parents. Mm -hmm. So you know, mm -hmm. what has brought you to writing this book? Yeah, so I am a writer. I did not know what the entry point into publishing was going to be. So this wasn't something that I sat down and said, you know, I'm going to write a book about education. The opportunity actually came to me. So if I back up a little bit before the book, um, I started writing for Learning for Justice. They were formerly known as Teaching Tolerance. And I remember it was after the killing of, and to be honest with you, I cannot remember which Black man or which young Black young man it was. There's, you know, there's been so many, but I remember just having a dream and I woke up and um, I was just led to write. And so the piece that I ended up writing was Don't Say Nothing, which um, after 2020 um, has just been widely circulated and a number of publishers came to me um, about just how do we encourage educators to do this really necessary work. Um, but I, I had been previously approached by a publisher in 2019, um, a good friend of mine was writing a book and she wanted the perspective of, of, a, of a school leader who was engaging in this work, who was coaching teachers and leading teachers through like, how do you do this? How do you center liberation? How do you center anti-racism? How do you center social justice in the classroom? Because it is a skill. Um, it is it is hard work and it's not something that educators are set up to do, at least not when I was going through teacher education programs. And certainly we know now that a lot of this work is being pushed back against like politically um, on so many different levels. So I was approached to write. I wasn't entirely sure what the book was going to become. I did know that I wanted Black women to be centered in this work. Um, just understanding our experience when I think about just movements of resistance, like Ella Baker comes to mind um, as just, we are often the force and the power behind the scenes. Um, when I think about the civil rights movement, you know, a lot of men and Bell Hooks writes about this, um, a number of other black women write about this, but a number of men, right, were given a lot of the glory and attention, but behind the scenes, as we know, right, both historically and presently, you know, black women are the center of just every good thing. Um, and so I knew that I wanted black women to be centered. Um, I I knew that the work of anti-racism, if I were to focus solely on anti-racism in this book, I knew that I would be doing a disservice not only to myself as a Black woman, but I knew that I would be doing a disservice to, you know, other folks who live at the intersections of multiple forms of oppression. Um, and so it was important for me to open 
this dialogue up. Yes, we should be talking about racism. Yes, we should be centering anti-racism and racial equity in schools. But if we're just talking about racism and we're not talking about homophobia, we're not talking about transphobia, we're not talking about patriarchy, we're not talking about classism, right? Then we leave so many people out. We leave out so many forms of harm. And ultimately, we don't get to this place of liberation, which I think is, for me, it is the goal of this work. Um, I know that education is powerful. I know that it is transformative. And as someone who has been on the front lines as a classroom teacher, I've been able to do the work that I write about. And so I want it to place in front of educators just really answers to the questions that I often get, which is like, how do I do this? And for some educators, it's why, why is this work really important? Um, and so I wanted to write something that is short. It's a pretty short text, um, but there's a lot packed in it. Um, and, and what's really important for educators is to have something that feels really practical because we are practitioners of how do I do this? Like, what does this look like in terms of implementation in my classroom? And so I wanted the work to be um, this flow between just why this work is really important, but also how we do it. Um, and for me, it was holistic. I wanted to make sure that we were focusing on all of the tenets um, that I outline in liberation. We have to talk about healing and self-care and wellness. We have to talk about love, which I think is um, you know, the ultimate guiding force. Um, we have to talk about anti-racism. We have to talk about joy. We have to talk about social justice. Um, and liberation for me was the umbrella that covered like that covers the multitude of all of those things. That's a lot, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you though, but it's good stuff, okay? It's good stuff. And the reason why I say that, because as you were talking, you know, now y'all know I be in the spirit, okay? <laughs> and as you were talking, I started to think about my journey through reading the text. And hearing and reading and seeing your words strung together for what is a poetic experience. Um, and I just wonder, because you named Fannie Lou Hamer um, and Ella Baker, and you named these pioneers, and you named bell hooks, and people who have paved the way in liberation. How has this process of writing this book been a spiritual experience, but also who are some of the voices that helped you to liberate your own voice so that you could write this text? Mm. So I'll start with the latter. Just the, the first person who popped up was just my mother. Um, I dedicate the book to her. Um, it's, it's so interesting. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother recently passed in March and uh, when I was speaking at her homegoing service, you know, I said to, you know, folks who were there, I did not, I don't come from a lineage of women who are docile. We are not quiet. <laughs> um, you know, we have gotten into so much trouble. I have gotten into so much trouble, but I was not raised to be silent. Um, I was not raised to lie, um, you know, and the models of women that I have in my family, particularly on my maternal side, are women who are just loud and forthcoming and they are truth tellers. Um, and so when I think about, I don't know that my voice ever needed to be liberated because I did not come from a space where I was ever silenced. And what I found, um, you know, and then you add going to a place like Spelman College onto that, you know, truly the world just was not ready. Um, and so I found that the world and spaces that I, you know, occupied outside of my mother's home, outside of my family, outside of the gates of Spelman College, you know, tried to quiet my voice and tried to silence me, which is incredibly harmful. But I didn't come from a place of not being liberated in the, in the first place in terms of my voice. Um, I was given, you know, opportunities. It was my mother who recognized um, just the love of dance and me. Um, she was the one who, you know, fought really hard. She does not have um, 
a formal education, but was, but that did not keep her from just pushing education for her children. She knew that she wanted, you know, just something more for us and education was going to be that gateway. Um, and so she, um, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, in order to land and like the best public schools parents had to go through lotteries. And I remember my mom, you know, taking off of work so she could be one of the first parents in line to make sure that we went, you know, we could only afford to go to public schools, but my mom made sure that we went to the best public schools. Um, you know, she really nursed my my passions. Um, and I just did not experience any type of bondage as it came to my voice, like, you know, under her leadership, under her guidance, um, you know, under her mothering. And I'm so grateful for that. In terms of how this work was just spiritual for me, um, the process of writing, particularly writing a really massive project like a book is deeply spiritual and it requires a really great discipline. So just moving through the years of writing this book, I started writing it in 2019. I was working as a school leader at the time, ended up resigning from that job, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But um, I remember once I moved back home, just recognizing one, that I needed a certain type of space to be able to write. I could not be in any old kind of headspace. I needed to be able to quiet my mind. Um, I had to get really specific around the foods that I ate because I needed a type of energy to be able to write the book because it it literally is like I'm getting the visual of something just kind of flowing, you know, from the top of my head, from the crown down, like into my hands. Um, like I need it to be a vessel. I need it to be a portal. And, you know, in order to do that, I had to get quiet. I had to get still. I had to remove anything that was making me feel really heavy. Um, and so it was definitely spiritual in that way. Um, I know that this work is so much bigger than me, just like being a classroom teacher, being an educator, holding space in the way that I do for women and girls of the global majority. The work is so much bigger than me. Um, I'm getting the, what's coming back to mind is, you know, before I would minister through dance, when I was at Spelman, there was just like a quieting that had to happen. Um, there was, you know, quite literally a, a prayer that had to happen, um, you know, so that spirit would move through me. And there was a very similar process in terms of the writing. Um, you know, I could not touch it at any, you know, particular time. I needed to make sure that I was approaching it with the right, you know, mindset and, 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 um, and in a space where I could be pouring from my heart because the work is really sacred teaching is, I mean, be, to be able to, you know, people entrust their children under our care. That is such sacred and holy and powerful work. Um, and it's not something that I take lightly. And so understanding that on the other side of this, you know, adults who stand in front of young people are going to take in this text is so sacred and it's so powerful. And so it was really important for me to approach it in a really delicate um, and intentional way. But also I didn't want to leave anything out. Um, it was important that I tap into the power um, and the importance of Black women when it comes to liberation. Um, it was important when I was writing about healing and self-care um, that I was able to access my vulnerability and a lot of the harm that I experienced working in schools. Um, and some of that was tied to working with other Black women. And it was really difficult for me to tap into that as someone who loves Black women and trusts Black women and believe Black women, right? And so it was really important for me to be able to handle this with great care. And I could not do that without tapping into my spirit. Yes, ma'am. I tell you, I love that. Oh my goodness. Like this spiritual piece that is so deeply rooted into who you are. And the fact that you knew that you could not separate yourself from the assignment, that the assignment was something that was given to you, right? This was a calling. This was a divine assignment that has been paved since before you were even born. I and mean, yet you have now arrived on this plane in this time for this assignment. And it has come out of all of your experiences, right? God has wasted nothing as you have written, as you have wrote to this book from your experiences of being in the classroom to your mother 
advocating for you as a child for the best education that you could possibly get, even as it was public education. And I thought about um, my own mother, as you were talking about your mother, my mother went down to the board of ed every single day. Okay. When I was growing up to get me into a better program. So there was a talented and gifted program. Cause you, you know, <laughs> you know, it was a lottery system. And my mother was like, not my child. My child will not get lost in the lottery. And she said, pull her test scores, pull her state scores, pull, look at her records, look at her report cards, look how she can write. And my mother was like my child, you know, and it's so easy for black girls to get lost in the shuffle. Not because we're not educated, not because we don't think, not because we don't have the power to imagine, not because we're not curious, but because the system wasn't designed with us in mind. Mm -hmm. And we are forgotten so many times. And so this is why everyone listening, this is why this text is so important because you cannot forget about the black girl. Mm -hmm. You cannot forget about the black family, but particularly with black women and black girls, when you give us the space to thrive, yeah. Anything can happen. We literally create worlds with our words, with our imaginations, through our movements, through our service, through our love for God, for people and community. And so, Jamila, I want to ask you, when you consider the Black girl, mm-hmm. what is your hope and your expansive dream for her? Mm. What is the hope and expansive dream for the Black girl? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first thing that just comes to mind is that that she would just be, right? If we just let her be, if we allow Black girls to be, if we allow Black women to be, there is so much power in just our being. When I think about the divine feminine um, and I think about um just the characteristics of the divine feminine. I think about how the lack of that and the disregard of that divine energy, that divine being in our society, it stalls so much dreaming. It stalls so much healing. It stalls so much power because we are in this patriarchal, just white supremacist culture and society. Um, Oh my goodness. I mean, just when I think about the divine feminine, I think about black girls. I think about black women. When I think about just the power to heal, when I think about the beauty and the power of our ability to rest and regenerate, when I think about nature and how just nature provides so much in abundance, just simply by being and going through the cycles that she goes through. When I think about just the creativity that black girls hold um, and how we quite literally birth so much into being, how we quite literally birth humanity into being. Um, She doesn't need to be tampered with. Um, She doesn't need to be silenced. She doesn't need to be relegated to the margins. We can't erase her. Um, and so when I think about just my, my dreams for, for black girls, everything that we are wanting to call into being all of the cures that we are seeking, right. Within humanity on our, um, just on earth. Um, when I think about just what we are lacking, when I think about what we are looking for, Um, When I think about um, just the answers that we're seeking to different um, questions and, you know, different equations, if we simply just allowed her to be, all of that would come into being. Um, Just nothing good comes from just quenching our fire. Nothing good comes from just making us be quiet. Like we lack so much and we lose so much when we do that. Um, And so my dream is to just allow us to be and to see the beauty, to see the power, to see the healing, to see the restoration, to see the regeneration, to see the creativity, to see that all that comes from like our birthing and our being. And I'm not just talking about the cycles of like birthing children um, because we're so much more 
than that. Um, but I'm talking about all of the things um, that need to be created, all of the things that are waiting to be allowed to come in, right? That come through these places of our creativity and our imagination and just, just leaving us alone. Um, yeah, that is, that is my dream to just allow us to be. Yes, just to allow us to be just as God intended, as God created us, holy woman, holy human, holy in all of these experiences. And so I really, really appreciate that. And just you sharing this, um, your dream for just for Black girls and for Black women to be able to be, right? And that is our birthright. Being is a birthright. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, it is. It is our birthright. And it is so sad that the world and the sy systemic injustice has placed so much pressure on us to feel like we are not enough, that we cannot feel enough to just be. And a lot of times that ends up leading to us neglecting ourselves and not taking care of ourselves and not caring and nurturing our bodies and our temples. And you talked about in this process of writing this book, how you were mindful of everything you ate to the environments that you would place yourself in. And so my next question is about the self-care um, and self-preservation that we need as Black women, but also too for educators, right? Because Mm -hmm. educators for teachers professors everyone who is on the front line who is teaching our children who is in the trenches y'all need y'all need some care child y'all need some care okay because I was a teacher for nine days okay <laughs> <laughs> I was a teacher for nine days in a charter school and I had to be at the school at like seven in the morning and I didn't leave till after four and I was like oh no god I ain't built for this okay <laughs> and I went and took my little self back to the church okay and then I became a pastor that was the job I took and I was like oh lord I was like I, I can't do it so but I have such great respect for those who can so how do educators and how do black women how do we care for ourselves <laughs> not nine days <laughs> Um, I hear you though. Yeah, it is, you know, teaching is such a sacrifice, um, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. I mean, you give so much of yourself. I mean, just, so I've taught in charter schools. I've been really intentional in teaching in schools where the children look like me, you know, children of a global majority, Black students. But I've also taught internationally in spaces um, with students who came from just a great deal of, of privilege, um, a great deal of money, a great deal of just support, particularly just thinking about financially and resources. Um, and in both, both places, I needed a great deal of care. Um, and so no matter where you are teaching um, and yeah, no matter where you are teaching, there is a great deal of care. And it's so funny when I was writing the book, uh, the chapters about healing and self-care, my editor was like, listen, we need two chapters on this. So there's one on like self-care and there's one on, on healing. Um, yeah. So just in terms of, you know, my self-care in terms of when I was working in the classroom um, and just my journey with that and then just guidance that I have for educators that I definitely talk about in the book. You know, I started in my first year of teaching. I was teaching in Boston. That's where I started my um, my teaching career in a charter school. I just started to notice I wasn't a yoga teacher yet. I, I was still, um, you know, had my background as a dancer, would dance here and there. And so I always had this awareness of my body and just paying attention to how I felt. And I think a lot of that just comes from being in the body, expressing through the body and paying attention to it a little bit more, like using it as an instrument, growing up using it as, a, as an instrument um, in a, a vehicle. Um, so I noticed... I would have certain class periods like after my lunch break and I would notice if I ate certain things, you know, I wouldn't have the same amount of energy and the same amount of patience, you know, for the children, you know, after the lunch break. And so I started to notice like, okay, you know, I can't really eat pastas and I can't eat things that are super heavy during the school day. 
um, because then I won't have energy to get me through the day. So at first it was just really small noticings like that, like, okay, during the school year, I need to eat certain types of foods. Um, as I went through my yoga teacher training, um, started to learn more about just like food is medicine, um, started to learn about things like Ayurveda and, and just this understanding that based on the constitution of your body, you need certain types of things, right? And just understanding that food really is fuel. Um, so for me, it was um, being super, super intentional about what I was eating when I was teaching, but also the realization that I couldn't always do that, especially when I was teaching in New York, especially when I was teaching in charter schools, I didn't always have the time. I mean, some days I would work 12 and 13 hours. I didn't always have time to go home and cook. Or when I got home, it was whatever I had time to cook, which means it wasn't always you know, super nutritious. Um, and then I started to have a lot of your body starts to break down if you're feeding it any old thing. Um, and even then, I didn't always have the time to pay attention to or to make the connection between, you know, I'm not eating well or my body is not being nourished in the way that it needs to. And so all of these different things are happening. My sleep is being interrupted. I'm being really I feel really irritable. Um, I don't have a ton of energy. Um I'm starting to see an increase in like my my mental health, like um, with my mental health in terms of like anxiety and depression and a lot of those things being tied to both like the work environment, the amount of stress that I experienced as an educator, but also like the food that I was eating. I also like to name this, and I think that I talk about this in the book, um, that just as a menstruator, um, my periods were incredibly painful. And for Black women, you know, women of the global majority, we're often told to like dismiss that pain and like, it's okay, you know, just take something for your cramps when no, not necessarily, like when your body is in pain in any other way, you know, we would pay attention to that as like, hey, my body is giving me a sign that something is not okay. Um, and so for me, it was getting to a place where, Mentally, I was really struggling. Um, I'm a fan of therapy. I'm a fan of taking medication if you need it. And I had to do both of those things to get through the school day, to get through the school year. Um, and then I made the decision to ultimately design, um, not design, resign and listen, redesign my life, but resign from working in schools because I was working under a leader and working under leadership that saw my desire to care for myself and to set boundaries um, and to desire, my desire to have this work-life balance, they saw that as like unbecoming of a leader and would quite literally say to me, um, you know, that my wellness had to look different because I was a school leader. Um, and I ultimately got to the point of, you know, if I continue to work in this way, working really long hours, neglecting my care, neglecting my wellness, um, if I don't make this decision to leave or to do something different, my body and my mind is going to make that decision for me in the sense that it's going to break down and I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, so I actually was a yoga teacher at the time. I took a medical leave under the advice of my therapist, took a medical leave, um, went to a yoga retreat in Bali. And while I was there, I decided to resign. Um, and so this is, you know, self-care and wellness and healing. It is just so incredibly important. I say this all the time to educators. Our work requires us to, to tap into the innermost, most human parts of ourselves. And if we are not caring for ourselves, we cannot do that. We need to be creative. We need to be strong mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, if that resonates, to be able to hold space and to pour out in the way that we do, especially for those of us who are engaging in the work that I talk about in the book, which is centering liberation, which is centering social justice, right? That work requires an additional toll because of the because of the world that we live in. Um, and so in order to do that, we have to make sure that we're sleeping well. We have to set boundaries. Um, I remember it was maybe my third or fourth year of teaching. Listen, I got really creative in terms of how I was just approaching teaching and learning in the classroom, um, leaning more into project-based learning, leaning more into mastery-based learning so that I could free myself up in terms of not 
having to take home so much grading, right? Making my classroom more more joy centered, more more student centered. You know, saying to my students, listen. I want you to be able to rest and care for yourself on the weekends because I'm doing the same, right? Like, you know, saying that I wouldn't respond to emails after a certain time, both small ways and big ways, um, just to be able to care for myself so I could show up the next day and be able to hold space and to be able to teach in the ways that, that I knew was most appropriate and most necessary for my students. And they need a lot. My students needed a lot. They really did. Mm. This whole resign and redesign, <laughs> this resign to, to design, let me tell you something, that will preach. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that will preach and this needing or understanding rather that there was something else that you needed that was not being fulfilled in the current space that you were in. You went on this retreat to Bali mm-hmm. and you were like, something's got to give. And it's not going to be me. It's going to have to be this because I refuse to lose myself in the process. And so I really appreciate how you have learned to, and I'm naming this from what I'm witnessing is centering self, centering the sacred self. And there's nothing wrong with that. And some people are like, oh, well, that sounds like really selfish. Like actually it's called preserving my life (laughs) because if I don't take care of me, no one else will. And you have this global experience, right? You have these global relationships and connections. I wonder, and this is out of my own curiosity, I wonder what have you witnessed um, in terms of care and education and the systems in other countries? Um, Because you've been, like I said, you had global experiences. How have you noticed that difference from the U.S.? Because sometimes in the U.S., we get ourselves in our own little bubble, thinking that all that there is is all that there is, that all that we see is how it must be everywhere. Could you share with us about your global experiences and travels and how you've noticed some nuances and some differences between the U.S. and being an educator here and being an educator overseas and abroad? Yeah, so the... The immediate difference in terms of care is that I was able to relax far more when I was teaching in other places. And a lot of that had to do with, now teaching was challenging and teaching was a full load no matter where I taught. When I taught in China, when I taught in the Dominican Republic, when I've taught here in the US, and also when I worked with teachers and educators um, throughout India, it's, teaching is full. I mean, it is, it is, um, it is a ministry. It is sacred work. It does require all parts of you. But the difference in other countries, at least from my experience, is culturally. Uh, so, you know, culturally in the U.S., there is this really deep um, investment and drive towards capitalism in a way that is so harmful, in a way that is so focused on output, that is so focused on profit, but at the expense of human beings. Human beings are expendable. Human beings are disregarded. I mean, it is just this toxic grind culture that is very much rooted into the DNA and the fabric, like racism, that is rooted into the DNA and the fabric of this country. But it is also something that exists so deeply and so harshly within schools to the point that, um, you know, like I experienced, if an educator is setting boundary it boundaries if an educator is saying no if an educator is seeking not to exhaust themselves they're seen as like you don't care about this work you're not working as hard you're not giving of yourself um which is something that is really really false and something that is really difficult um i constantly go back to this mantra i live it um, I definitely talk about it in the book, but it's the words of Audre Lorde, where she says that, you know, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, caring for myself is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Um, and so when I taught and worked in other countries, I think by the de- design and the nature of the culture, there, um, in some Spanish 
Spanish-speaking countries, there is this really beautiful emphasis on just family time, on just time for naps, time for a break in your day, time for joy in a way that it just does not really exist and look in the U.S., um, when people are away, people are away. When teachers are on, you know, a long weekend or teachers are on a break, listen, teachers are always working. It is the na nature of what we're doing, but there was this ability to be able to unplug, um, and, um, an ability to be able to just enjoy nature, to enjoy other people in a way that I just did not experience working in schools um, in the US. Um, there is a care for the body, a care for beings, for human beings in a way that I just did not experience um, in the US and, and working in schools. And I do think a lot of it is, is tied to just to capitalism. I think a lot of it is tied to white supremacy culture and, you know, perfectionism. Um, I do think that a, a lot of it is tied to um, patriarchy and the sense of just this kind of like um, praising of like the divine, uh, like masculine energy. Um, and by that, I don't mean just specifically like male. Um, I mean, just the energy that values just like going and doing as opposed to like being and resting which is more of, of like the divine feminine um and so i i felt more creative and i felt um more able to just be and i actually think that when i was teaching in other countries um in some ways i was a better educator yeah because of that so i want to actually quote something that you wrote from the book Okay. You, be, you be writing okay <laughs> y'all I need you to hear this okay <laughs> understand how schools harm students schools do harm full stop some educators might question why healing ought to be a part of our field our practice it is important to acknowledge and understand the ways that schools are sites of pain for many students Schools, particularly schools in the United States, are institutions that are built upon and designed to sustain white supremacy culture. A white supremacist culture is predicated upon the suffering of those who are not white. This means that non-white cultures are often erased, dismissed, minimized, exoticized, trivialized, demonized, and excluded altogether. A part of an educator's job at the most basic level is to ensure that students are well, that our children are in spaces where they feel and know that they belong, that students' safety is ensured, and that the students are able to learn. I was like, my God, today. <laughs> and I was like, you better write, okay? I have many of those moments. Um, but to say that students that non-white cultures are often erased, dismissed, minimized, exoticized, trivialized, demonized, or excluded altogether. Mm -hmm. What? Mm -hmm. Like, you talk about the school, like in the U.S., can be violent. You talked about how you had an experience where you noted that you were going to resign. And I don't know if we always do... Hmm. As a culture, I don't know if we do enough of a good job of talking to our kids when they come home, right? Even in the church, you know, I used to serve as a youth pastor. I wonder sometimes how were the children experiencing violence in the classroom just by way of just being there? And I also wonder for teachers, how are they experiencing harm just mm -hmm. because they're doing their job? So can you speak to that and what can we do as a general public to make noise about that and to really be intentional about caring and creating a community of care for our teachers, our educators and our children? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just thank you for that. The, the chapters on healing and self-care just took a lot out of me, um, and also required that I pour so much because it is painful. Um, when I think about just our, oh gosh, our beautiful, beautiful young people. So I'll start with just 
how young people are harmed in the classroom and then what harm um, looks like for, for teachers, it was really important for me to break down what harm looks like in schools. Um, and I get a lot of questions from educators just about that. Like, you know, healing sounds really powerful. You know, are we healers? We're not all therapists. We're not all social workers. We're not doctors in the classroom. Like, say more, Jemila, like, what are you talking about? It So it was important for me to be able to name and break down the different types of harm and what that looks like in schools. So there are in some schools and there are some examples of students being physically harmed, like adults quite literally putting their hands harmfully, violently, like on students. Listen, I'm an empath. I can't watch a lot of really harmful videos like I just can't do it my nervous system can't take it like I, I can't take it um, but I've read about it and I know it to be true that in some schools um, and I do name specifically in a book because when I was writing this book there was um, I read a, a report about uh, a white principal in Florida quite literally like hitting spanking a child and I had to name that in the book I had to name that in a book um so there is quite literally the physical harm there are some states where legally like this is st still allowed um if if I'm correct um and I, I haven't checked in a while but um so there's quite literally the physical harm that happens in schools. There's the psychological, emotional harm that happens in schools. Some of that harm happens by forcing students to be silent. Um, and when I think about black students, when I think about students of the global majority, many of us come from cultures where we're just loud and we're expressive and that's just how we be, that's how we are. Um, and so certainly, now silence has its place, but when there's this overly forcing of students to be silent, um, that is a form of harm. When there is silencing in the sense of not truth telling, and I talk about this in the, in the chapter on truth telling, when we're just straight up lying to students and we are silencing students' histories or we're not telling the, the truth about students' histories, like that is a form of harm. If I'm a student in a space and when I'm learning, one, if I'm not learning about my history, that is a form of silencing. That is a form of harm because I'm not being exposed to and I'm not learning about the beauty and the power and the resilience and the contribution and the cre creativity of people who look like me and of my ancestors and of folks who have come before me. That is a form of harm. Um, when I'm being lied to, like in certain states, like you know Florida and some of the legislation and the leaders, um, if we can even call them that, Right, that are coming out and you know suggesting just lies about enslavement or that are seeking to you know hide the truth. Um, this this country has had a really long history um, and a really fraught um, and difficult relationship with truth telling. And a part of where we see that play out is in our schools, right? Like that is a that is a form of harm. If I'm never learning about the truth of who I am and what I've contributed. That is a form of, of harm um, when it is just kind of relegating parts and pieces of a student's um, history and you know their ways of being and their culture. And we say that it is not academic or we say that it is not right or we say that the way that you express or the way that you learn or the way that you demonstrate your knowledge is not correct because it's not rooted in whiteness right? Or it's not rooted in um, like white supremacy culture. That is really harmful. Dr. Bettina Love, who's the author of Punish for Dreaming, and I, uh, I name and reference her book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, a lot in, in Toward Liberation. She talks about the spirit murdering that happens in schools um, to young people, just through all of the different things that I named, like that is harm. When I think about black girls specifically, when they are dismissed or they're labeled as being angry or as 
aggressive when they might be dealing with mental health challenges or they might not be in the mood or they may, may not like you and they're telling you about yourself, right? Like that is a form of harm to when we're diminishing and dismissing. So just slapping somebody or pushing somebody um, is not the only type of violence and that is not the only type of harm. We have to keep in mind that there are other ways, you know, that a that abuse happens. We have to keep in mind that there are other ways um, that that harm happens, and I and I name a lot of that. Um, in terms of adults um, and the the harm that adults can experience, I think about just my experience as a black woman working in schools, both you know under. So I can't think of too many schools that that are not in some way run under like white leadership, which I call out in the book, like at what point are we going to have the conversation around how is not okay, right? That black students or predominantly black students or student, students of the global majority are forced to learn in schools that are run by white people in some way. Like even when I have worked under, um, actually I have mostly worked under um, leaders of color and most of them were or leaders of a global majority, as I like to say, most of them were phenomenal, um, with the exception of a few, but most of them were phenomenal. But the, you know, executive directors or the assistant superintendents or superintendents that they worked for were white folks. Um, and, and so you have just a, a variety of, of harm. You might have what we see now, you know, post-2020 and this long overdue awakening, you know, to racial injustice is you see a lot of folks of the global majority, a lot of black folks, especially black women being thrown into positions of leadership. But if you throw them into these positions of leadership, but the, the expectation is that they continue to uphold white supremacy, like that is, that is harmful. Um, and that is diminishing, um, in a way for me, it was, um, I can't tell you how many ways I was subtly or directly referred to as an angry black woman, which is a form of harm and which is a harm just so damaging to my spirit and to my emotional being and my psychological being in so many ways. And thank God for my mother and grandmother and Spelman um, and the examples of black women that I know that I'm able to lean back on and, and refresh and like encourage myself. But that is a form of harm. Um, you know, dealing with and working with other leaders, other black leaders, other leaders of the global majority who um, see someone who's walking freely as a threat to their own being and the different ways that we uniquely kind of clyde each other and seek to pull each other down was something that I uniquely experienced that if I'm honest, that trauma is some, something that I'm still working through because it just hits very different when it comes from your own. Um, I think a part of that harm, you know, I experienced people saying to me like, what do you mean you're setting boundaries or you don't want to, you know, you're, you're criticizing having to work a 12 or 13 hour day. That's what you get paid to do. Like that is a form of harm as though my well being is, you can't monetize that like that the 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 essence of my being my humanity you can't put a price on that right and so that is harmful but also um treating me different differently evaluating me differently because of those choices um i think that you know for some educators it's experiencing shame for making certain decisions um it is sometimes you know classroom teachers are thrown into the classroom and they're not prepared uh, for the work that they're doing or they don't have the skill sets for the work that they're doing. Um, I think that that's really harmful to both them and the young people um, that they're working with, you know, forcing educators to work really long days to be malnourished and normalizing um, a lot of that. Um, scolding or um, ostracizing folks who tell the truth, like the folks who speak up and push back against things, like those are also forms of harm. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that it looks, there's a lot of ways that schools can really just embrace and move to this place of healing, because there are so many different ways that harm manifests on both sides. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being open and vulnerable um, to share that. And I cannot even imagine woe to the one who called you angry because child, all I know is that Jemila Pitts is 
one of the most incredible, genuine, sweetest, kindest, and loving individuals who I have ever encountered. And I mean, that person was just, they, they woe to them because <laughs> you truly are a, a joy, um, a radiant beam of light and love in the world. And you are even doing that through your work with She Imprints. And so before I let you go, I have got to ask you about She Imprints because you are doing an amazing work, a phenomenal work as an entrepreneur, as you are also an educator and author. Oh, I can go down the list now, y'all. See, educator, author, and entrepreneur, Jemila Pitts. Tell us about She Imprints. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I really do. Um so I say that this book is, it is my love letter to Black children. She imprints is my love letter to Black women um, and Black girls and women of the global majority and girls of the global majority. We serve at the intersection of wellness and justice. Um, it is, it really feels like my heart work and my legacy right now. She imprints, it really does. Actually, um, so when I had the beautiful, beautiful, amazing privilege to compete for the title of Miss Spellman, uh, when I was at Spellman, my uh, platform was called Imprints. And it was, you're absolutely right, like God wastes nothing, right? Because a lot of this came full circle for me, um, but it's, it is expanded and it is evolved um, in the beautiful, beautiful ways that just God does and, and uses all of us. Um, and so I found when I started working in schools, I often thought about what I needed um, as a Black girl. I was really insecure. Um, I really struggled with just self-confidence. Um, I, I really struggled with mental health. And I didn't know that I was struggling with mental health. I, I really struggled with depression as a teenager and didn't know that until I got um, older. Um, my mom, again, was a really great advocate in terms of just like, you need to see somebody, you need to talk to somebody, but we just weren't at the place that we are now in our society in terms of talking about mental health and being able to embrace that. Um, and so when I thought about as an educator, I mean, as a black woman, I see black girls, like I, I see black women because they are me. Um, and so I, I thought about that. I, I thought about just I'm always ever grateful for my Spelman experience. And I know that when we pour into black women and when we pour into young black women, uh, I mean, you know, you went to Spelman. It's just, it is transformative. It is healing. There is nothing like a Spelman woman because of the experience that we've been able to have in community with each other. Um, and so I wanted to be able to create that um, in a way that I could, and that makes sense for me. And for me, as someone who holds space for healing, um, as someone who's really passionate about wellness, as someone who comes from a long line and a lineage of, of healers, um, and understanding that for me, healing and justice, especially for Black bodies, especially for Black women and girls, especially for folks who are the descendants of enslaved people, it has to be tied to injustice. Um, and so for me, it was thinking about how do I do this work in ways that highlights both of those and understanding that for us, um, a part of our healing, we have to tap into justice. We have to tap into um, destroying um, and eradicating systems of oppression that cause us not to be well. Um, and so for me, we do that a number of ways through She Imprints. Uh, we do that through international wellness retreats. I just let one in Panama and it was incredible, like quite literally leading folks to the water and like just being in nature and like being on really sacred ground um, and, and the ability to tap back into ourselves and to tap back into so much of what the world takes from us is just like where our power is. It's where our healing is. And we do that so powerfully and beautifully in community. So I do that through international retreats. I've been able to partner um, with some really powerful organizations um, that work with girls and women um, into lead retreats, customized retreats with them. I do that through wellness coaching. I'm able to work with school leaders um, um, and supporting them and centering their healing and also through just like a great deal of, of justice work and that looks a number of ways. So it is um, love for me means, it means action, it means justice, it means healing. And I'm able to do a lot of that through that work. All right, Jamila Pitts, everybody, the author of the upcoming release of Toward Liberation, Educational Practices Rooted in Activism, Healing, and Love. It will be released on November 7th. 
And as of right now, it is still out for pre-order. So make sure you pre-order this book. I'm telling y'all, okay, pre-orders are so important to authors. Okay, y'all don't even know. Publishing is a whole nother beast. And so it is so important if you can go ahead and order the book and putting it in the link in the description box. So make sure you pre-order the text, get your copy. If you're listening to after uh, November 7th, which is also election day, if go yeah. on over, after you go cast your vote, go on over to a bookseller near you and get the book, get the book, get the book, get the book and share it, buy somebody else a copy and share it with someone and join the conversation with Jamila because she would love Love to hear from you. And so, Jamila, thank you so much for being here. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, just thank you so much, Portia, just for this space, for, for allowing me to be able to just to talk about the work in this way, because I don't often get the opportunity to be able to explore it in this way. So thank you. And thank you for all that you're doing and all that you're amplifying. So people can find me at Miss Jamila Pitts. I'm, I'm working on the social media thing. I really am. It's it's not my ministry, but people can find me there. Um, also, my website, Um, and also LinkedIn, Jamila Pitts. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jamila. We appreciate you all listening and tuning in. Thank you. Y'all give it up again for Miss Jamila Pitts. Make sure you go get a copy of her book right now toward liberation, educational practices rooted in activism, healing and love on sale. Now, if you are listening to this podcast, make sure you grab yourself a copy, gift somebody a copy. The holidays are coming. Gift a teacher, a copy, an educator, and just share the love. As always, I love you all for listening. Thank you for being here. Make sure you are subscribed to this podcast. Make sure you are sharing this podcast and please do me a favor go ahead over to the website www.portionite.com make sure you are subscribing to the sounding board newsletter make sure you are following the blog and make sure if you have an interest go ahead drop me a line you can sign up to be a member of this podcast you can be a guest on this podcast you can oh my goodness book a reading with me because my services are available so go ahead and do that until next time. Take good care. Take good care. Peace.